good. So good. This is one of the reasons why fun little silly things like Easter egg hunts on Easter are so important. Because it's teaching children early, early on that churches are places where God has hidden things for you to surprise you of his goodness and his grandeur and his glory. God wants to do that to you for the rest of your life, the rest of your life. He wants you to come into spaces just like this, and he wants to surprise you with things he's hidden here for you. Mm, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus. Wow. All right. Focus. Doxa, the series that we're in, each week we're spending a little bit of time talking about a core doctrine that is sacred to us. God is one, the Bible is true, the cross is enough, mankind is helpless, Jesus is life, eternity is real, the church is central, we're not doing them in any particular order. Tonight we're going to be doing eternity is real. If, if you've not been following this entire series, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Go back and listen to the ones that you haven't, because it's not an, an apologetic on the veracity of these doctrinal statements. It's looking at these doctrinal statements and then challenging you to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit and come up with a life statement that's connected to the doctrine. The, the question is, how are these doctrines changing the way that you're living? Specifically, we're asking this, this idea, or, or do you feel like these beliefs that you have are unlocking glorious living for you? Doxa means glory, splendor. It's, it's a Greek word that you find in the New Testament. Grandeur, power, kingdom, praise, honor. It's used about the revealed presence of God. It's used in reference to God himself. The root of doxa is to think or suppose or believe or consider or imagine. So you can see why it's the perfect fit for this series because we're saying, are these things that you think about, these things, these beliefs that you hold as sacred, are they unlocking glorious living in the sense that are these beliefs helping you point people to Jesus? Are these beliefs helping you to point people to a God who can only be described by words like glory and splendor and grandeur and power, praise and honor. Seven life statements we hope that you're going to have as you come out of this series with us. Tonight is eternity is real. Eternity is real. Listen to me. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. It's important that you understand this. Death is not the end. It's the end of something, of this mortal physical body, but death is not the end of you. Death is the beginning of you. We are eternal spiritual beings living inside of a temporal mortal body. We are eternal spiritual beings living inside of a temporal mortal body. I heard years ago somebody say, this is just transportation transportation from temporal to eternal. We were at a funeral recently, a dear friend of mine whose father passed away, president, uh, Pastor Chris Ball, who's the president of Elam Fellowship, which is the fellowship that we're a part of. Even though he was born in England, his family moved here and lived here most of his life. And, and when they moved from England to here, they moved right here to Hampton Roads. This, this was his home. So we've developed 
a friendship, obviously, because we're part of Elam Fellowship, but often when he would come home to visit his father, we would get to spend some time together, and his father just recently passed away. His father's name was Idris, which, was, which is a, a very distinctly British name. The only other person I know named Idris is Idris Elba, right, the actor. Chris's father looked very different from Idris Elba. One of the meanings of Idris is giant. Chris's father is four foot ten. Okay, isn't that great? Oh, so good. Four foot ten. Chris was telling the story during the funeral about his dad. We were all just, we were, we were laughing so hard. And, 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 and when we were leaving the funeral, I, I mentioned to Vanessa, which happens, happens to me often, when I go to a funeral to support a family member and I didn't know the deceased, I almost always leave feeling like I wish I had had the opportunity to meet that person. They told just hilarious stories. They said he lived in America, but he was all the way British his whole life. And this week as I was reflecting on the sermon and thinking about that funeral and thinking about I wish I had had the opportunity to sit down and have a cup of coffee with Idris, I just felt a such a distinct prompting of the Holy Spirit whispering to my heart, you will one day. You, you are gonna meet him, Fred, because this is what we believe about eternity. Because he had made a vow of devotion to Christ. I didn't get to meet him here, but I'm gonna get to meet him there. Got me excited about this message about eternity being real. Second Corinthians 5.8 reads this way, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying death is not the end, it's the beginning. It's the end of this mortal body, but it's the beginning of eternity for you and I. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 reads this way, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Come on. Then we will be with the Lord forever, because death is not the end, it's the beginning. So encourage each other with these words. This is Paul saying, hey, don't get so attached to this world that you forget you were born here so that you could live there. And he's saying not only that, but one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to return. The Bible in the New Testament keeps returning to this theme. This, we call it the second coming of Christ. I remember in 1990 when Jesus was finding me and my lostness, I had two very distinct dreams. One of them, as I was driving home, it was at night. In my dream, I was on Kingsland Road, which is in Verina, in Henrico County, east of Richmond, in the middle of nowhere. 
And, and, and in my dream, I'm, I'm driving down this road and Jesus appears in the sky. And, and, and even though I had grown up in the church, I had rejected Christianity, but I had knowledge of everything that's in here. So I knew in my dream what this was about. And in my dream, all of a sudden, I began to get caught up. Actually, the car I was in actually began to get caught up, which is not actually biblical, but it's just in my dream, right? And, and so, and, and, and as I'm rising up to meet Jesus, in my dream, I have this conscious thought, I should not be rising up to meet you because I do not follow you. And see, I believe in that dream, God wanted me to feel that I would be left behind. He, he wanted to create the feeling of me rising up to meet him because he wanted me to know if he came back right now, I would not rise up to meet him. I had another dream that same summer. In my dream, I had, I was, you know, sometimes you dream you're back in time. And I was back in college and at the fraternity house and we were at this party and we were all out on the lawn and Jesus appeared in the sky and the same thing happened. I got, I began to get caught up into the heavens to meet Jesus. As I, I looked down, I saw all of my fraternity brothers looking at me as they were being left behind and I, and I had that same thought. If this were to happen, I would not rise up to meet Jesus because I was not one of his. Again, I think Jesus was trying to help me to see that unless I made a vow of devotion to him when he came, if he came in my lifetime, I would be left behind. Both of those dreams impacted me, gave me incredible pause. It was part of my journey that year, as many of you know, it was in December of that year that I made a vow of devotion to Christ. John 14, one through seven, I'm not gonna go there for the sake of time. We're, we're, I'm gonna hit a lot of text tonight. I, again, these notes are always available for you online. You can download them and read them your, yourself for the ones that we pass over, but I still wanna point them to you. In John 14, one, seven, this is where Jesus, he knows he's at the end of his life. He's one of his last few moments with his disciples, and he says to them, I go to prepare a place for you. And, and then he says, if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come back so you can be with me where I am. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying death is not the end. It's, it's the beginning. Jesus wants us to understand there is something waiting for us after this life. The blessed hope. Bible doctrines. We've read out of this already in this series. The central theme of the preaching of the early church was the resurrection of Jesus and how his resurrection also becomes the guarantee of ours. His resurrection is the, is, is the ground for our faith and hope. One of the great affirmations of the New Testament is found in the words of Jesus, because I live, you also will live. That's in John 14, 19. Paul calls it a mystery, something not revealed in Old Testament times but now made clear. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised to imperishable, and we will be changed. Our blessed hope, Jesus is coming back. And if it's not in our lifetime, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, when you breathe your last tear, you're going to take your first spiritual breath in heaven with him. It's incredible, isn't it? You're going to be a part of the second coming of Christ. Whether you're caught up to meet him or whether you're with those that come back to get those who have. Incredible, right? You're going to be part of it no matter what. 
to be made a vow of devotion to him. All throughout the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, we keep seeing this theme over and over and over again. Death is not the end, it is the beginning. The Mount of Transfiguration, right? We get so excited when we read these stories, but we have to remember one of the reasons why these stories are in here is because Jesus is trying to come back to this over and over again and again so that we will not go through this life wondering what's waiting for us on the other side. In Mark chapter 9, it's in some of the other Gospels too. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus goes to the top of this mountain with Peter, James, and John. And they get to this top of this mountain and all of a sudden Jesus sheds his humanity. He reveals the fullness of his glory. And guess who is up there waiting for him? Moses and Elijah, who died hundreds of years ago. But yet here they are. Why are they an important part of the story? Because Jesus is trying to say to us, hey, Death is not the end. It's the beginning. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, what's the writer of Hebrews talking about? All of those who are in heaven watching us as we live out our days. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. You and I are living our lives in front of a great cloud of witnesses. I'm the only one in here who's ever watched a reality TV show. Have you ever watched a reality TV show and thought to yourself, they know they're on camera? Is it just me? Have you watched some reality TV shows and you thought to yourself, somebody told them that there's a camera following them around, right? It's not like candid camera. I don't know if you even know what that is when I was growing up. Or practical jokers, maybe that's the modern day version, where people don't know they're being watched. Well, a reality TV show, you know you're being watched. And you're thinking to yourself, even if that's really who you are, pretend to be something different because people are watching you on national television around the world. If you want a reality TV show, you. You might treat people a little bit differently. You might be a little bit more cautious about the words that are coming out of your mouth. This is my question to you. You and I are in the ultimate reality TV show right now. We live our lives before a great cloud of witnesses. All of heaven. All of heaven. Even when you think you have found yourself into a place where no one is watching, you've actually found yourself in a place, just like every other place in your life, where more people are watching than you could ever count. How does my belief that eternity is real inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Eternity is real, people. I'm gonna talk to you tonight about what I mean when I say real. Real means consequential, and real means exclusive. Real, real means consequential, and real means exclusive. Let's start with consequential. Real means consequential. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a certain rich man 
who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps for the, from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died. He's carried by angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. We're going to be talking about hell tonight. We're going to come back to that. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything that you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. It's interesting. We're always telling God that what he's doing is not enough, aren't we? Abraham said if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even listen if someone rises from the dead. And we know that to be true because Jesus rose. And still people do not believe. This is such an important text for us because I, like many others, it's a common belief, it's not an exception. This is not a parable. You cannot find another parable that Jesus teaches where he gives people names. The parables don't have names, and they don't have names for a reason because you're supposed to see yourself in the story. But this isn't a parable. This is Jesus telling us something that he had witnessed. This is history, and it is real. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. And when the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted the good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. See, there's no names, right? This is a parable. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked? No, he replied, you'll uproot the weed. If you do that, let both grow together until the harvest, and then I will tell the harvesters to sort the weeds, tie them in bundles, and burn them, and put the wheat into the barn. Jumping down to verse 40. This is Jesus explaining the parable. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Come on. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand because Jesus is saying death is not the end. 
It is the beginning. Eternity is real, and real means consequential. You need to hear me say it tonight. Universalism is a lie. It is not true. It is a false teaching. Universalism says that because Jesus died on the cross, that his forgiveness extends to all people, whether or not they accept it or not. Universalism. We do not believe in universalism. Many people ask the question, and it's a fair question. If God's a God of love, how could he condemn someone to hell? These are important. You've got to be willing to talk about these things with people. These are really good questions. And there's lots of answers to it, but one of the most important is because perfect love always gives a choice. See, the answer is because God is love, there is a hell. People think if God is a God of love, there wouldn't be. But because God's love is perfect, he gives you a choice. And because God's love is perfect, he's careful to protect those who choose. I'm going to be teaching about this over the summer. We've been teaching about this here at the church for several years, about the idea of the comparative experience. I believe that's why we're born into this world The Bible teaches about a great rebellion in heaven. That's where Lucifer, Satan, comes from. He's a fallen angel. And all the angels that that joined in that rebellion fell with him. And I believe that God's great plan for humanity is to repopulate heaven with beings who have a comparative experience. See, if you're created in heaven, that's all that you know. You're susceptible to rebellion, but not you and I. Because we spent our whole lives knowing what it's like to be separated from him. And when we're born into heaven, when we take that first spiritual breath, even after 10,000 years, our heart is going to ache to stay there because we're going to remember what it was like to be here. Mark 12, 31. Matthew, I'm sorry, 12, 31. Mark 2, Wow, I can't read tonight. I'm going to reset. <laughs> Matthew 12, 31, Mark 3, 28 to 29, and Luke 12, 10. All of these texts, again, I'm not going to read them. They're in the notes. You can download them. Jesus talking about the unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin. It's called blasphemy. Blasphemy in Jesus' day meant a complete and total rejection of someone and everything about them to the point of slandering them in an effort to ruin their reputation. It's the perfect word to talk about the unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin because the only sin that can't be forgiven is your rejection of the Holy Spirit trying to reveal to you that Jesus is your Savior. That's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is... You rejecting the Holy Spirit's revelation to you that Jesus is your Savior. And the reason why that's the only unforgivable sin is because Jesus is the only way that you can be forgiven. So I'm asking you, how does my belief, how does your belief that eternity is real inspire you? How does it inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? Real doesn't just mean Consequential, it means exclusive. Real means exclusive. See, there is only one way that determines the consequence of your eternity. Only one way. All roads do not lead to heaven. 
Only Jesus' road does. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 reads this way, so I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. See, that's why it's connected to blasphemy. You, you and I cannot come to Christ unless he first comes to us, right? Jesus said, no one can call Jesus Lord but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyone who comes to me, it's because my Father has drawn them. The Spirit of God begins to bring about an understanding inside of us that the human mind would never have reached on its own. John 14 through chapter 16. All three of these chapters, so much time is spent on talking about the work of the coming Holy Spirit. One of the primary works of the Holy Spirit in the world today is to bring a revelation of Jesus to us. So to reject the Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus. And in Matthew 13, we've already talked about the consequence of that. So many texts in the Bible could not be more clear regarding the consequence of the rejection of the revelation that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, that he died for the sins of the world, that he rose from the dead and he's coming again. And when that revelation comes, you have a choice that you need to make. Will you say yes? Romans 10, 9 through 17. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jews and Gentiles are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Come on, like a courageous man walking into a dark forest. How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes by hearing, that is hearing, the good news about Christ. You have to choose. You have to decide whether or not you will embrace Christ and the forgiveness that he so freely gives I'm going to deputize all of you a theologian tonight. You ready? I am at one with God, rescued from myself, just as if I'm perfect because Jesus paid it all. You need to memorize that statement. For some of you, you need to speak that over yourself every day that you wake up until God says you don't have to do it anymore. I'm not kidding. Every day. Can you imagine? You, you roll out of bed. I am at one with God, rescued from myself. Just as if I'm perfect because Jesus paid it all. Four of the most theologically important words that you will ever find in Scripture are atonement, redemption, justification, and propitiation. 
Now, those are hard words. You don't need to remember the hard words. Just remember that simple statement. Because they appear to you in order in this statement. I'm at one with God. That's what atonement is about. You've been reconciled to him through Christ. Rescued from myself. You've been redeemed. Just as if I'm perfect. Justification. Meaning that you and I can never earn or deserve the salvation that we cherish. And when God looks at us, once we've made a vow of devotion to Christ, he does not see us anymore. He sees the perfection of Christ. That's the gospel, people. Propitiation is a whole lot of P's and a whole lot of syllables that just means that Jesus did it all himself. Which reminds us there are no other ways to heaven but by him. It doesn't just mean that he paid it all. It means that he's the only one that paid it all. Luke 12, 5. But I tell you whom to fear. This is Jesus talking. Fear God. Mm -hmm. It's our memory verse for the kids tonight. Has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. I'm just kidding. I use that joke all the time. Because I'm a dad and I use the same jokes all the time over and over. That's what dads do. We don't need other people to laugh at our jokes. Yeah. I know. That's one of the beauties of getting old. You don't need an audience anymore. I, I use this all the time, this, 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 this joke about we're, we're, this is going to be the kid's memory verse because this is never going to be the kid's memory verse. And it shouldn't ever be the kid's memory verse. The problem with many of us as, as adults is theologically, we're still in the nursery. The, theologically, we're that all we, we've got is what we garnered in vacation Bible school and kids' church. At some point, just as you've grown and matured physically, intellectually, and emotionally, hopefully, you're going to reach back to the theological part of who you are and start doing the heavy lifting to bring that part into maturity. Because if you don't, you know what you're going to fall prey to? False teachings like universalism. John 14, 6. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. But by me, that's what he says. He's the only one. Christianity is absolutely exclusive. It is exclusive. Because Jesus is the only way, and whether or not you embrace him is the most consequential decision that you'll ever make in your life. Why? Because eternity is real. Because death is not the end, it is the beginning. So how does my belief that eternity is real inspire me to pursue a life that reveals God's glory to the world around me? Let's talk about hell. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about hell. You know why? Because God wants us to understand that it is a real place. He wants us to understand that it is not mythology. It is not fanciful thinking. It's not an allegory to teach us a lesson. The spiritual realm has a geography to it. There are real places 
in the spiritual realm. And hell is one of them. Four distinct words that you will find in the Bible for hell. There may be more, but these are the four most prominent. The first one is Hades, H-A-D-E-S. It's going to pop up on the screen, the hell of Hades. It literally translates the abode of death. The emphasis of Hades is the idea of a kingdom and a realm, which means that it is both a place, it has a culture, it has values. We don't think about evil having values, but it does. It just values all the wrong things. And like any kingdom or realm, it's always trying to recruit people to it because misery loves company. Again, these are, all of these are in the notes. You can download it. Matthew 16, 18 tells us that hell is an organized force. All of these fallen angels are working together in this natural world to try to keep everybody that they can out of heaven. You know why? Because they understand also that eternity is real. Because they understand also that real means consequential and exclusive. Because they understand also that death is not the end. It is just the beginning. They are an organized force. Revelation 6.8 tells us that hell is still ultimately subject to God. It is a kingdom and it is a realm, but there are limits to its power. Luke 16.23-24, to 24, which we've already covered, which I believe is not a parable. It's history. There is a consciousness to those people who are there. We do not believe in what's called annihilationism, which means that after you die, if you don't go to heaven, you're just annihilated. Matthew 25, 46, Revelation 14, 11 tells us that eternity is permanent. You understand why this idea of consequential is so weighty? It is permanent. Permanent. There's no parole. There's no getting out for good behavior. There's no second chances. You get a lot of that here. Praise the Lord. It's called grace. But the moment we breathe our last, all of that is over. The hell of Gehenna literally translates the place of punishment. The emphasis here is on suffering. This is specifically named after the valley of Hinnon that was south of Jerusalem where trash, waste, and dead animals were burned. You understand, right? This was a real place in Jesus' day. There was a massive dump. There was a fire that burned there that was never extinguished where they burned trash and dead animals. So when Jesus uses Gehenna to reference hell, he's using something that they understand and can relate to because most of them had been there. Jesus is saying that's what hell is going to be just like that. Luke 12, 5, Hebrews 9, 27, it is a place of judgment. Mark 9, 43 tells us it's a place of suffering, a never dulling suffering. You will never acclimate to the horror of it. Matthew 23, 15, hell is often seen manifest through behaviors of people who are not followers of Christ, to the point where Jesus calls those people a child of hell. And James 3, 6 tells us that hell is a place that tempts us to try to keep us from God's great grace and glory. Tartarus, the hell of Tartarus, this also means a place of punishment. It also has an emphasis on suffering. 
This is where, again, the Bible does an incredible job oftentimes of using language, right? When it was written, it would, it would borrow the language from their own mythology. Why is that? It's because God in every culture has put, can we just, let's keep, put these little Easter eggs. He hides these things in secular culture so that when people are exposed to the truth of Scripture, there's something that tethers us to it. So when the Bible uses this word Tartarus, people understood because in Greek mythology, this was a subterranean region regarded by ancient Greeks as the abode of the wicked dead. The Bible isn't saying that Greek mythology is true. It's saying that even within Greek mythology, there are these little Easter eggs of truth that will tether us to the truth of Scripture. It's used, this word specifically in 2 Peter 2.4, as a sober reminder of the reality of this place. The last one is the hell of Sheol. It means the grave or the unseen state. And for Sheol, it has both an emphasis of realm and suffering. It's used interchangeably. Job 7.9 tells us that it's overturned from this place. Psalm 6.5 said it is a place without praise. Proverbs 5.5 and 7.27 describes Sheol as a place of degradation, and Jonah 2.2 says that it is an emotional exile. Eternity is real. Death is not the end, it is the beginning. And real means consequential, and it means exclusive. I'm going to the worship team to come back up. One of the cars that we have, 2006 Saab, just rolled over 180,000 miles. We're, we're doing the march to 200. It was mine, then it was Derek's, and it was Ethan's. Somebody gave Claire a truck, so she was spared. The Saab life, we call it. But I remember when it was still my car, back when it crossed over 100,000 miles, we we're, we're coming out of uh, um, the community center up in Denby. Uh, Ethan had, had a basketball game, and, we, and, and, and when I came out, I noticed one of my, my uh, mirrors, my side view mirrors on the passenger side, the glass had fallen out of it and just shattered. You know, when you, cars get old, it's just stuff starts falling off of it. Well, that's an important piece of your car, right? And I went online, and the replacement glass was $150. Like, I'm not even sure my car's worth $150. But at AutoZone, they had these little plastic mirrors for 10 bucks, all different kinds of shapes and sizes. They let you take it out and see which one fits right. And it's got that 3M tape. When, you know, once you stick it on there, it would take Jesus to get it off, right? Because sometimes good enough is good enough. It is. If not, you'll chase perfection around and it'll be like chasing your tail, right? You've, you've got to embrace this idea in life, in the human experience, sometimes good enough is good enough. This is the mistake that we make. We take that principle and we apply it to ourselves. Listen to me, you and I will never be good enough. We will never be good enough. This is the gospel, people. You and I will never be good enough. Eternity is real. Real means consequential and exclusive. Death is not the end, it is the beginning. And you and I will never be good enough to belong to heaven for an eternity.
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it, people. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This will be one of the heaviest sermons that you're going to hear preached here all year. This is what's incredible. The answer to that message could not be more plain. Could not be more plain. Stand with me. Father, I pray as we go back into this moment of worship, I pray that you would prepare people's hearts for what we're going to invite them into in just a few minutes. If you're watching from home, I just want to encourage you right now. Just, I know a lot of things are probably going on in your house. You, you might be riding down the road on a road trip listening to this sermon. Find, find a place, find a rest area where you can pull in. If you can't, just keep your eyes open, but just give an ear to the Lord. Still our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, we want you to have our undivided attention because we believe that tonight, on this Saturday in April of 2021, that you're going to do what only you can do, that you're going to open someone's spiritual eyes to see Jesus in a way that they've never seen him before, that you're going to open up their heart to make them ready to receive him like they've never received him before, that you're going to open up their mind to make some declarations to him that they've never declared before. This part of them that is gonna live forever. This part of them that makes them unique. This part of them that makes them special. This part of them that has nothing to do with this outward physical body. This eternal spiritual being that you have created that bears your image. That all of heaven is cheering for on this night. Jesus, help them to see you. Help them wake up tomorrow being able to say maybe for the first time, I am at one with God. Rescued from myself just as if I'm perfect because Jesus paid it all. Let's worship together.